Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today we'll be talking with Marco Kecki about his book entitled The Primacy of Resistance, Power, Opposition, and Becoming. Marco Kecki is a lecturer in business and management at De Montfort University in Leicester. His research interests focus upon a postmodern conceptualization of the primacy of resistance in relation to management and organizational studies with a strong attention to political philosophy and social science. He is also interested in alternative forms of organization and social and community-based entrepreneurship. Thank you, Marco, for being here today. How are you doing? Thank you, Kyle, for inviting me here. Uh, fine. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you. And uh, can you give uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so, as you said, like I'm, a, I'm a, in a business and management department at the moment, uh, but like my interests like a bit wider than that. So, I come from a background in political philosophy, but also like I have a background like in um, uh, activism and political practices. So uh, my research like tries to focus alternative on alternative ways of organizing. And by saying that, like I mean, like instead of focusing on uh, the classic mainstream business uh, and the classic way of uh, managing businesses, like uh, what I try to do is to explore all the uh, all the other existing activities in which like uh, there are forms of resistance that try to. Uh, go against those uh, mainstream classic organization and try to construct a new horizons uh, of solidarity and uh, emancipation mutualism. That's great. So what drew you to the concept of resistance and kind of how did that influence you writing this book? Uh, Yeah, well, um, it started like, first I would say like as a sort of personal experience kind of thing, you know, like a natural uh, attachment to the idea of resistance, like in, in the sense like I've always been like very active in terms of demonstrations, in terms of like uh, political activism, a bit of militancy here and there uh, in small projects. 
Um, and then like I came across the work of Michel Foucault. I was studying political philosophy in a master, uh, in my master, and then like I carried it on in uh, during my PhD. Uh, and the idea of resistance that he develops uh, is very interesting and way underdeveloped uh, in comparison with like uh, the attention that has been given to power in his work. His ideas on power, the ideas on power on Michel Foucault by Michel Foucault are really, really uh, high-opening because like they offer a completely different perspective on the traditional understanding of power in political philosophy. And it's something that really resonated with the uh, with my own experiences, but the experiences like of generations of uh, from the seventies onwards, uh, in which like we understand that power is not just about uh, the government or the state, but we find forms of power in many different aspects of our own lives. Um, there is a re- way of reading Foucault that is always like a really uh, negative in the sense of having the feeling that power is everywhere, and so you're crushed by power. Uh, and instead, like, I think, like, if you have a more attentive reading, I'm not claiming that my reading is better than others, but, like, it, between the lines, like, uh, and also between, like, uh, if you go through the interviews that Foucault was giving through, through his lifetime, there is that sense that resistance is a constant presence and it's not just about power. Actually, it's the other way around. Resistance is a very strong presence that keeps changing the dynamics that uh, in, where, in where power uh is a stake and, and the way in which power changes is actually because of resistance. There would be no, no reason for power to change at all if there wasn't enough resistance pushing for that change to happen. So that's like the, where my interest can, came from. Like, and from there, I managed to connect uh, with other bodies of thought and theories and philosophies in which these ideas of resistance were somehow there maybe not explicit, but there were a lot of potential. There was a lot of potential that could be grasped uh, from those other theories. And so you mentioned uh, Foucault there. Prior to your exploration of resistance, how was resistance kind of conceptualized? Uh, in, in his work, you mean? Right. Yeah. Well, in his work, like there is the, fam- the very famous kind of uh, dictum where he says, like, where there is, where there is power there is resistance. Uh, other than that, like he has basically a chapter in uh, the first volume of the history of sexuality, the will to knowledge, like his, first, his, his book from 1976, in which he does give like some hints of what re- he means by resistance. Uh, I, I would say that like it, it still remains a bit cryptic because like you need to make a lot of, out of like very few pages uh, where actually the concept is way, is way wider than that. Uh, the way in which he conceptualizes it, like it's, um, it starts like from an understanding of power as relational. So power is not just an entity that acts uh, in isolation, but it needs to be, uh, to have like a, another element of the relation uh, where power is acted upon. So there would be no power if there was no other uh, force enforcing that power, making that power circulate. So we start from an idea that power is in a relation, is always in a relation between who, let's say, exerts power and who is subjected to that power. Now, we are, most of our lives, like we conduct, that we conduct, like uh, most of our actions, most of our uh, behaviors, most of our routines are conditioned by power. 
So we do what basically what is expected uh, by what power wants us to do. Uh, going to work every morning is like the best example of it. Like you go to work, it's like obviously there is a system in place in which like the relation, uh, uh, it's there is a relation of power or a series of relation of power that like somehow forces you to do it almost naturally. So you don't have anybody like forcing you to do that, like, but actually you've been forced to do it. Now, this is a relation of power. At the same time, there are a lot of occasions in our lives in which like we can sort of step away from that relation and find alternative ways of deciding about our lives and about our actions in a completely different way. And that's for me what resistance is about. So it starts from those very micro gestures of, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that in that way. Uh, oh, well, I'm gonna do it, but I really wouldn't want to. You know, like, and this is, I think, like, is an experience that even the most loyal and obedient subject on earth would still have on a daily basis. Like the, those little moments in which, like, uh, yes, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't really want to be doing that. Uh, you might end up doing it anyway, but you have like those tiny bits in which, like, there is attrition, and I think that's for me, like, is the beginning of resistance. From those little moments of resistance, then you can uh, connect other resistances in a strategic way. And then from those little moments, so that you can get to a revolution. That's what like Foucault says as well, like uh, it's a matter of coding. So there is a swarms. It's like, I really like the idea of these swarms of points of resistance, like uh, micro resistances everywhere, every day, in every aspect of our lives, in every aspect like of a country, of a nation or whatever. And then those little experiences of resistance can actually get together, coordinate themselves and get into a proper strategy that can change things in a macro way. Sometimes it happens, we've seen it in history, we see it in history all the time, uh, even like in times like with the COVID, right? Like where everybody thought like that we've been locked down, so there is no space for resistance. And we saw resistance flourishing everywhere. We saw seen Black Lives Matter how beautifully they managed to take the streets like for many days and uh, bring something completely different to the uh, ordinary routine and stability of power. Right. And you try to make the argument too that um, resistance isn't always a response to power. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think like uh, this is like uh, the, the way in which possibly my reading of resistance differs a bit from traditional understanding of resistance. Um, normally, like uh, we have a conception in which like power is always there. Power is always there. And so what resistance can do is just react to that. And, uh, and this is like a, a perception that to me is politically problematic because like it let us appreciate how it's difficult to fight power but it doesn't let us appreciate how many resistance pop up any, any, anyway, everywhere. So despite all the odds, like a resistance, like it's always there. Like, and you're always going to be surprised. Like I, I did, I gave the example of Black Lives Matter, but you can, you can come up with a million examples on a daily basis. There is always cases of like, the, oh, really? Is that happening? How, where does it come from? And so I think like uh, we should invert the, uh, the, first from a strategic perspective, but also from a logical and conceptual perspective, we should invert the aspect in which we place power first and then resistance as a reaction. 
is power that is actually a reaction to resistance, to resistance that are there or to resistance that might be there. So to put it in another way, uh, if somebody is forcing you to do something, it's because you naturally wouldn't do it yourself. I mean, like if it's something that you would do anyway, there wouldn't be any need for any form of power that obliges you to get to do that. So it's all, power exists at, always as a reaction to something that naturally, and I'm, I mean, I'm using the word naturally like in a bit like a liberal way, but naturally you wouldn't do it. So I think like that's like a, in the, the moment in which we can real, ad, understand this inversion. Uh, resistance is not just about like saying no, but it's like a, about a way of life uh, that is completely different from what power wants. And when I'm saying a way of life, I'm understanding a way of being together. So a way of being like together in a cooperative, uh, emancipatory, in, so in, a, in a way that is got solidarity as its main drive. And this working together is always interrupted by forms of power that tend us to divide, tend to divide us, like to interrupt that flow of creativity. So we have, I, in what I'm trying to do in the book is to present resistance as an affirmative force to which power reacts. And you talk about that inversion of the concept of resistance as just being a response to power. Um, and you kind of begin in chapter one by like defining a theoretical framework. Can you explain that for our listeners and kind of the re- power relations to resistance? Yeah. Um, what I do like a, um, in the first chapter is basically to trace um, the ways in which a resistance has been understood, uh, not just as reactive, but also as oppositional. Uh, so being against something, right? Like this is like a, something that is sedimented also in the language, right? Like when we, in everyday language, as you says, like I'm resisting against this, this and that. Uh, now, what I try to do is like uh, to invert that reading and uh, get to the point in which like is power that is against something while resistance tries to affirm and create alternative ways of life, alternative ways of being, and uh, and the way in which like the the theories that I call upon him basically draws like on Foucault as I was saying earlier and his idea of power relation uh, and how these power relations can actually produce a system that is a bit static so that reproduces produces and reproduces a system in which like a, a hierarchy and divisions are settled instead resistance brings is what brings a dynamic element of change into this uh this relationship now it's not just like foucault obviously but like it's in particular is the reading of foucault that is given by gilles deleuze so another uh, philosopher from the same time basically a former friend of foucault uh then they split up all uh in the, in, a, in my opinion i think like there is a sort of reconnection after the death of Foucault, especially in, in the lectures uh, that Deleuze gives on Foucault in uh, 1996 um, and uh, 1995 and 1996 uh, that are being recently transcribed and published uh, by a Purdue University, a group of Purdue University. Um, and I think it's very interesting to see this kind of change uh, and how it connects to actual struggles and resistances of that time. Uh, there is all 
uh, a connection, theoretical connection, but it's also a practical connection with uh, uh, Italian uh, autonomist uh, Marxism and workerism, so operaismo, uh, in which there was this idea that basically is at the, at the core and, I, and that I developed in another chapter of like le- the relationship between labor and capital. So this is like more or less the theoretical framework where all this notion of resistance as first uh, comes from. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and you begin to talk about those, uh, those closures that happen um, that kind of block resistance from being um, this primary means. Um, and could you explain how the developments of like the Enlightenment in the 16th and 17th century kind of impede upon that affirmation? Yeah, um, I, I basically devote the first part of the book like to these ideas of this historical conceptual closures, like uh, the idea in which, like, uh, uh, I think the idea of resistance as first, uh, as uh, the primacy of resistance, was actually there, and then somehow it gets blocked. It's got, like, lots of potential, and then that potential is transformed into something else that actually goes to, into the opposite direction. So this is my understanding of closure. And in particular, I think uh, um, on the idea of uh, uh, contractualism. So this, the, the, those political philosophers uh, that then eventually will find also in the alignment uh, uh, the place, basically the state of nature as something that comes before the actual civil power. Now, this is like a, something that like any student of philosophy, a, a political philosophy, I believe is very familiar with. So like figures like... Uh, uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, uh, and then like you have, you have also like more contemporary kind of versions of these, like John Rawls. So all this liberal thought in which like we have uh, a state of nature that is like disorder, anarchy, uh, chaotic. Like uh, it's basically <laughs> a place where nobody wants to be. Especially like if you take uh, uh, Hobbes' version in which like you have this uh, war of uh, all against all. So like it's just like a a disaster like that everybody wants to escape and uh, and in order to escape that like you're willing to give up part of your freedom uh, and go underneath like a uh, civil power so basically this is the liberal idea of like uh, uh, passing from a state of nature to power now it's interesting too because like uh, obviously i was not attracted by the war of all against all, uh, where bellum omnia contra omnes, like uh, in uh, from Hobbes. But I, I was always wondering, like, uh, why would people have to fight each other? <laughs> when the, uh, uh, why is that so natural to think that uh, human nature is at the level that, like, if there was no restraint, so if there was nobody controlling us, we would kill each other? Is that really natural? And uh, by posing this question, and actually, I actually found. Uh, uh, an historical antecedent of this uh, uh, kind of thinking that is like this possibly minor thinker from uh, the 16th century, uh, Etienne de la Boissy, uh, it's like this French 
um, and that basically published only this work. Like, and I think he was 18 when he wrote it, but actually it became really popular over the centuries. And is this discourse on uh, voluntary servitude, uh, in which basically it says something similar. Like, this is like there is a state of nature, and then there is the actual power. But for him, the state of nature uh, is not that dramatic, like as Hobbes would want it, but it's actually a very beautiful place. So <laughs> a place in which like there is cooperation, there is uh, uh, mutualism. It says something very interesting that it gets a bit lost in the English translation, but uh, um, it doesn't say that we are free in nature as per se, but it says like we are free because we are all companions, we are all comrades. So as we are all comrades that can help each other, that's where our freedom comes from. And it's very beautiful because like uh, it does like all these very uh, kind of uh, uh, imaginative ways of depicting this solidarity uh, in which, like he says, nature gave us like different uh, talents uh, so that we could help each other. It was actually a way for uh, developing like uh, a mutual kind of support to each other. And I found that idea is like uh, as an idea that in which what I call resistance, so a kind of life that is like again without power, uh, comes actually before the actual uh, coming to be a power. And it calls power a misfortune. I really like that, that, that idea. It's like at some point there is the misfortune, this, uh, this accident, power happens, and then society is completely changed and we lose our nature. Uh, this, I think I find it really beautiful uh, because like it, it gives like the idea that power is not needed per se. So power is not natural. What is natural is cooperation and solidarity. Then something dramatic happens and power begins. So it's actually the opposite that you find in Hobbes, for instance. Mm. And Hobbes, I think like that, that's what I understand for a closure is the way of taking that kind of thought. So this kind of temporal division between a state of nature and power and turn it upside down saying, we don't want the state of nature, we need power. So, and that I think like is the, is a closure because like uh, it, it keeps driving, it keeps being driven by the idea of the primacy of resistance because in the liberal thought, there is always been like, especially with uh, the first thinkers, like uh, this kind of state phobia in which power is there. It's something that we don't really like. But we don't really like, not to the point of anarchy, but never, uh, we don't really like it, but we still want it. You know, like that's, that's the kind of liberal kind of thought, uh, uh, liberal right-wing kind of thought in which like you have like, a, yeah, maybe power is a bit annoying, but we need it. And instead, like with the Laboitzi, we find the opposite. So I, th- I find it is a, as a closure of that kind of thought that gets buried into the deep, uh, uh, secrets of uh, political philosophy and what comes to us instead is like a Hobbes, Locke uh, and this kind of like a subject of rights and so on and so forth. Yeah, and and then um, and then you kind of go into um, the problem of labor as well. Um, you say, quote, the primacy of labor might seem the economic equivalent of the primacy of resistance, but you then go on to say that that isn't really true. Um, so could you kind of explain how the primacy of labor blocks the primacy of resistance? Um, yeah, I think like is the, is, is, is the evolution, what happens with that, and especially like in the moment in which from the primacy of labor we get, uh, I make this connection 
with this idea of uh, human capital. Uh, so the idea of the primacy of labor comes like from this uh, uh, Marxist uh, uh, tradition, especially like in the way in which it was uh, applied in Italy in the 50s and 60s, and then later on in the 70s as well, like of operaismo, which is the idea of workerism. Uh, you have uh, this uh, philosopher and activist like Mario Tronti, uh, which like he basically put, it, it turns upside down the class, classic, even classic Marxist reading of uh, of the economy, in which we have like uh, capital comes first, and then you have labor. Uh, now, turning upside down this relationship is a really beautiful and interesting kind of. Uh, way of putting it because like it explains what what labor is and what capital is so capital uh which is always given like as a prior uh to power is in is instead like a, uh something that is derived from cap from labor uh if we understand capital basically as the accumulation of profits uh those profits is basically dead labor so it's that portion of, of surplus labor that is extracted from the labor process and it becomes a portion of capital. So there is this relationship in which labor actually constitutes capital in the first place, but also there is the level of uh, in which labor becomes a form of resistance. So when organized labor and uh, worker struggles uh, push capital to invent other ways of, of development and for instance like a uh, you can t think of any technological advancement like uh, obviously technology is always like presented as this beautiful neutral kind of progress but instead very often are ways in which capital tries to ex ex exploit workers and extract uh, profit and surplus value uh, by protecting itself from worker struggle so for instance like a uh, I don't know, you can think of any kind of uh, technology of today, even uh, uh, AI, right? Like it's a way of like uh, having capital being run by itself, by algorithms, so that like uh, there is no way that workers can actually stop that production. So, you know, in a way you can see that like they had to find a way of protecting themselves like uh, in order uh, to suppress worker struggles. So this is like the idea that you find uh, in uh, uh, the Operaista uh, kind of thinking, and that's where the primacy of labor comes from. But at the same time, that primacy of labor is not just about labor. That's why I'm saying like it's not just the economic equivalent of a primacy of resistance, because it's much more than that. Uh, when you come to define labor in that way, so in the moment that labor is liberated by the relationship with capital, what you appreciate that is labor corresponds like to all the potentialities of human action. And in that sense, like you have this opening up, like of the concept of labor, uh, once it's liberated from actual capitalist production, you have like other ways of being creative and using your own potential to create stuff, other stuff, like other things. And uh, this is like very similar, though. And then that's that's where I get to the closure, the other historical closure, uh, paradoxically, to the idea of human capital in which basically everything we do uh, as an individual can be turned into our own capital. So even our education, because education was like the way in which like 
neoliberalism presented this idea of human capital. Education is functional, is instrumental for you to develop uh, an income, basically, a stream of income. Uh, but what changes dramatically is that like a, this idea of turning basically human labor into human capital, it basically destroys the antagonistic relationship with capital itself. So if we are all you, uh, human capitals, like uh, uh, we fight each other and we compete with each other. So it takes away all the dynamic of solidarity that instead is, is expressed by labor because labor is by nature cooperative. And instead, ca- the relationship with capitals between capitals is by nature competitive. So it's the opposite of this uh, solidaristic and mutualistic and cooperative relation that you find with a resistant way of understanding labor. And after you look at these closures, you kind of look at contemporary theoretical openings for um, the primacy of resistance. So how does the work of uh, Ranciere and Negri uh, create a theoretical opening for resistance? Well, I, I think, first of all, like, it's like, I, I, I chose like Rancière and Negri uh, as two uh, thinkers that helped me out to take this primacy of resistance in a setting that is related to politics. And politics understood like in, uh, in two very different ways, but like that converge somehow, but that have the uh, power to connect with other aspects. So, for instance, in Ranciere, you find this connection between politics and aesthetics, while in uh, Negri's work on Spinoza, uh, which I find particularly beautiful, particularly inspiring as well, uh, you have this connection between politics uh, and metaphysics. So, um, not just metaphysics, but like the, uh, a real ontology, so the whole space of being which then I used to connect with in the final chapter. Um, I consider them openings uh, because like, I think even if there is a dynamic in which resistance somehow is like uh, used and exploited by power to change and so to find other ways in which like those uh, affirmative ways, a trajectory of a potential horizon get shut down into disclosures, we don't have closures yet on on these kind of aspects. Like so, when we're talking about politics from those perspective, from uh, the perspective of aesthetics and from the perspective uh, uh, of metaphysics, like we still have the potential to extract from these uh, trajectories of uh, theoretical trajectories, conceptual trajectories, a lot of uh, strength that can be used in our understanding of resistance and in our, our understanding of how practices. Contemporary practices can inform, uh, can be informed by this idea. Um, I really like like the way in which uh, I, I prefer to talk a little bit more about uh, Negri's uh, understanding of Spinoza because like it's a it's a very interesting way of uh, defeating this power, this uh, relationship between uh, uh, within power between potestas and potentia. In which, like, basically, potestas, like, is there is this idea in which power is presented as static, uh, and and I mean, like, and if I think if you think about it, like, any state uh, is by definition static, and instead, like, you have potentia that is like this force of pushing this potential that pushes like uh, the state uh, and the state of things to change continuously, 
uh, otherwise everything will be dry, everything will be dead, right? Like, and instead, like uh, this dynamic uh, uh, urge that comes from what I what I associate with, I, I do that, I draw the association between potential and resistance because obviously, uh, and, it, and it's Negri himself that called it it's a physics of resistance when he talks about uh, Spinoza to express this idea that like uh, this dynamicity of being that cannot stay calm, cannot stay still, cannot be static, cannot be locked into uh, into a specific arrangement, uh, guarantees that things keep changing, and uh, so we we constantly faced with new situations, with new uh, dynamics, and those dynamics can always be more emancipatory, even though like we don't see that happening like uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, and. And then you kind of trace even more newer experimental trajectories um, in chapter five through materialism. Can you kind of explain um, how you trace those? Yeah, uh, the last chapter, basically, I uh, try to engage with like Deleuze and partly with the work of Gattari as well uh, and trying to understand how their ontology means like they develop like a strong ontology so a strong discourse on being is is represents like a form of radical materialism where the dynamic element is resistance as understood by Foucault and I think like uh, this might be partly controversial because like especially uh, after they fell apart like uh, in the in the late 70s, uh, it seems that Deleuze and Gattari have like a, a bit of um, uh, take a bit of a distance from Foucault, uh, in, especially on the point of resistance. But I think in uh, in his book uh, from 1996 and in his lectures like on Foucault, uh, there is a very clear uh, adoption of that model, in which like he says like resistance must come first, like is a necessity for Foucault's model and for this ontological model. I think it's no coincidence that Foucault is the only author to whom Deleuze, the only contemporary author to whom Deleuze devotes a book. So he's, he's written books like on, uh, on uh, Nietzsche, on Spinoza, uh, but, but then like uh, the only contemporary author is actually Foucault. And I think that's a very interesting uh point as like it shows how the importance of creating this materialist kind of understanding of ontology uh, necessitates an understanding of resistance in which like uh, there is a force that keeps changing keep forces the materiality to change and uh, and uh, the way in which i understand this materialist uh, materialist ontology is by cutting through entities and identities uh, by looking at actual forces, so a microphysics of force like uh, that you find in Foucault, to understand like how things actually interact with each other at a micro level. So even like uh, uh, when we find our internal struggles, so to speak, like uh, we can understand them like into micro forces that operate in connection not just with ourselves, but like uh, in in an interrelation that is much wider and is like uh, at the level of materialities. Where my realities like can indicate like uh, uh, beings, uh, human beings, like uh, or non-human beings, uh, or even things or thoughts or whatever. Like so, everything is uh, wrapped into this like material kind of understanding. And what are some future 
research agendas for resistance that you kind of see? What are what's something that excites you most right now? Well, that's a nice question. Uh, what I'm trying to to do at the moment, like, is a uh, is trying to maybe to not really to step away, but like try to take some distance from uh, uh, political philosophy per se, and trying to see how this model and this set of ideas that I developed in the primacy of resistance fit with current experiences and experiments uh, of resistance in actual practice. Uh, um, I mean, like, uh, I think every movement, and I think that there is a lot of space for resistance movements everywhere in the world, and we see them popping up like a uh, without philosophers' intervention, obviously, like uh, they pop up automatically anyway, everywhere, which is very beautiful. Um, I think they all sort of support this idea in the sense that, like, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is like there is not just opposition, uh, there is more than opposition, there is like prefiguration and construction of a different way of being on a, on a different alternative horizons of potentialities. And we see this happening like a in every kind of context. Um, what I've been doing, for instance, like lately, like that is connected also like with COVID, is uh, trying to look at experiments with uh, uh, social clinics, uh, which are basically a different way of doing healthcare, uh, especially in a moment in which healthcare is become like a, a very hot topic that is uh, for continuous attempts of privatization or uh, full privatization in other countries, also the interest of the big pharma and industries and so on. And instead having ways in which like uh, we can create uh, more uh, solidaristic ways of understanding uh, healthcare, I, I think it's, uh, it's a way of showing how this primacy of resistance doesn't necessarily go against the model, but beyond going against the model, it creates an alternative model where affir- the affirmation of a potentiality is happening in practice. Well, Marco, I think we've taken up a lot of your time today. So I have one final question. Um, where are you off to next? What are you working on now? Uh, well, as I was saying, like I'm working like on a number of projects like in which I try to see resistance in practice, like how this resistance is happening. So I've been doing some work on uh, uh, social clinics, I've been following the case, the really interesting case of a, a group of activists that have occupied a hospital in Italy, which I found really interesting because, like, it's uh, it's really unusual to think like of a hospital as like a contested space, but it, it's beautiful when it becomes an actual contested space. And uh, what I've been doing in the recent past is also uh, with a chapter in a book that is about to be published next year uh, is about recuperated factories. So examples of uh, uh, factories that have been shut down and uh, the workers decide to occupy them and uh, restock production. Those are really uh, unsung like stories of uh, success, like but uh, very beautiful because like it, they create like a whole exp- horizon of experimentation in which we can actually see how l- our lives can be organized in a different way. And, uh, and that's what really attracts me at the minute. So I'm... Uh, following these little examples that pop up here and there, uh, hopefully showing that the primacy of resistance can be understood uh, also through actual uh, uh, activist groups and militant practices. Well, thank you very much for your time and thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Like, thank you for your questions and thank you for the time that you offer me on this space.
Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for our discussion of Dr. Marco Kecki's new book entitled The Primacy of Resistance, Power, Opposition, and Becoming, which was recently published by Bloomsbury. Bye for now.